So if you still have your Bible in your hand, I would encourage you to turn to the New Testament, to the book of Ephesians chapter 2. If you don't have a Bible with you, there are Bibles out on the table. Feel free to slip out and grab one. It's helpful to have a, a, a Bible in front of you. You can also get the passage that we'll be looking at on a device if you have a Bible app on your phone. Uh, and then if you don't have that, you can always get the passage in your order of worship. It's printed in your bulletin. So again, turn to the book of Ephesians chapter 2. And you'll remember that last week we looked at verse 11 through verse 13. And we talked about this move of the Apostle Paul from talking about our condition, that we were dead in our trespasses and sins. We've been made alive together with Christ. And now Paul's moving into a section where he's going to reflect on how the gospel brings us together as the church across lines of division. Last week, we talked about the division between Jew and Gentile and how Christ has brought near those who were far off. Now, verse 13, but now in Christ Jesus, you who once were far off have been brought near by the blood of Christ. And our text today, picking up on verse 14, is unpacking this idea, giving the grounds for that. Look at verse 14, and I'll, I'll read through verse 18. For Christ, he himself is our peace, who has made us both one and has broken down in his flesh the dividing wall of hostility by abolishing the law of commandments expressed in ordinances that he might create in himself one new man in the place of two, so making peace, and might reconcile us both to God in one body through the cross, thereby killing the hostility. And he came and preached peace to you who were far off, and peace to those who were near. For through him, we both have access in one spirit to the Father. This is the word of God. Let's pray. Father, we come today in our access to you. We thank you that we have access to you through Christ in one spirit. And we thank you that you have given us your holy word and that your word is a lamp unto our feet, a light to our path that directs our way. And we pray for special guidance as we think about the application of the gospel in our daily life and how it breaks down barriers. And so we pray for, for wisdom, for understanding and guidance. We pray this in Jesus' name. Amen. So there was a, a problem in the church, a problem in the church at Ephesus. There was a problem in the early church. And that problem was division. There was division along racial, cultural lines in the church. This division between Jew and Gentile. 
And to remember that that division went all the way back into the Old Testament. And then originally that divide between Jew and Gentile wasn't wrong in and of itself. That actually God had established this distinction between Jew and Gentile. But it wasn't intended primarily to be about a, a racial distinction or a cultural distinction, but it was a theological distinction, a covenantal distinction. God setting apart a people for himself. But he told Abraham back in Genesis 12 that as he blessed Abraham and blessed his offspring, that they were intended to be a blessing to the nations. That all along there was this sense of, of blessing the nations, reaching out beyond the boundaries of Israel. And even in the Old Testament, you saw examples of Gentiles being brought into the covenant community. Think of Ruth. Think of Rahab. Think of others. This, this light to the Gentiles. But by the time of the Apostle Paul, this biblical distinction between Jew and Gentile that was established in the Old Testament had become something that was far more destructive, that it had become a, a line of hostility, a line of division that was primarily a racial cultural divide where there was hatred, there was enmity across this barrier. And you remember that in the earliest period of the Christian church, the apostles thought that the gospel, that the New Testament message was only for people of Jewish heritage. That was their original idea when they went out to proclaim the gospel. And you'll remember how Peter, the great apostle, leader of the early church, dined with a Gentile named Cornelius in Acts 10. And it was an important turning point in the life of the church that the church realized, wait a second, God has torn down this barrier between Jew and Gentile. <clears throat> that we are no longer to be Jew and Gentile divided along this racial cultural line, but actually God is pouring out his spirit even upon Gentiles. And that the call for the New Testament church is to be a multicultural, multiracial church going out Jew and Gentile to the nations. And the disciples began to realize what Jesus had said all along, that the call of the Great Commission was to go out into all nations, proclaiming the gospel, baptizing in the name of the Father, the Son, and the Holy Spirit. But then the church struggled to, to apply what they knew was true about the gospel going out to the nations. Yes, churches were planted in Gentile communities. Yes, churches sprung up that had both Jews and Gentiles worshiping side by side but it was still a source of tension. There was a lack of unity in local churches. People wouldn't eat with those who were, had a different ethnic heritage. People were divided in, in cultural expectations about food or ceremonial laws, and it was causing major problems within the church. But as we think about that division that divide, it may even sound familiar to the modern context. 
that we live in a time where the church is still divided along racial lines, that there is still a, a seed of anti-Semitism that can arise in the church. You see a long history of anti-Semitism within the Christian church, all the way from the Crusades through the Reformation and even to modern times. You see racial division within the church. That is, it's been said that Sunday morning is one of the most segregated times in American life. That so often we worship separately from those who have a different culture or come from a different background from ourselves, that there is division along racial lines. And perhaps you even know some of the tragic history of the church relative to race relations. There are good examples, but then there are also examples of people in the name of Christ perpetrating the slave trade or defending race-based slavery or participating in the mistreatment of Native Americans, you think of the Trail of Tears and how there were Christians who participated in violence against others on a racial basis. And it, sometimes it was done in the name of Christ, that there has been division and segregation that has been propped up by people claiming the name of Christ and even brought within the walls of the church. That when it comes to race, often the church has been more like the surrounding world, that often we have reflected the trends of society more than being a light and a beacon to the world around us. And in this way, we're not that different from the early church and the divisions that they faced as well. But then we see other divisions in the church. You could think of socioeconomic division in the church. I think about this in our denomination, the Presbyterian Church in America, that there has been a lot of repentance and a lot of growth in terms of seeing the church as a multi-ethnic, multicultural institution. And there have been many more pastors brought in from different backgrounds, multi-ethnic churches being planted, which is good. But I think that often our denomination can be divided more socioeconomically, that I've seen strides of PCA churches reaching people of different skin colors, but still then primarily reaching white-collar people, that, that the, the PCA tends to reach people who are college-educated, who do pretty well economically. And that's not bad, but it's, it's symptomatic of a, a deeper problem that we see within the church where we're reflecting the world more so than being a light to the world, where there are divisions, not only racially, but culturally, socioeconomically, where we only want to be around people who are like ourselves. And so we face this problem in the church, not unlike the early church and the issues that they faced. And that's where this passage before us is so helpful. Because Paul is confronting division, this racial, cultural division in the church. And so as we look at and study how he confronts the division, it helps us face divisions in the modern world as well, whether they're racial or cultural or socioeconomic. So we're going to look at the, this passage today under two headings. So first... 
Paul confronts division in the church by reminding us of the gospel, by reminding us of the gospel. And then second, Paul confronts division in the church by reminding us of powerful implications of the gospel. So again, he reminds us of the gospel, and then he reminds us of implications of the gospel. So let's start with that first heading, that that Paul confronts division in the church by reminding us of the gospel. Look again in your Bible at verse 14. It says, For he, Christ himself, is our peace, who has made us both one and has broken down in his flesh the dividing wall of hostility by abolishing the law of commandments expressed in ordinances that he might create in himself one new man in the place of two, so making peace, and might reconcile us both to God and one body through the cross, thereby killing the hostility. As you look at that, notice the phrase dividing wall of hostility. What does he mean by a dividing wall of hostility? And the language of that dividing wall comes from the temple in Jerusalem. We talked about this last week, but when people would go up to the temple to worship in the city of Jerusalem, they had a, a picture of a dividing wall of hostility. And that dividing wall of hostility was between God and man, fundamentally. God and humanity, Jew and Gentile. Because within the temple, there were the outer courts. When you came into the temple, there was the holy place. Then there was that that enormous curtain barring the way into the most holy place. And only the high priest could pass through that curtain, only on the Day of Atonement, only with blood, because that was where the holy presence of God dwelt in the midst of the people. And the point of the imagery was to say that God is holy, supremely holy, that he can't tolerate sin or wickedness in his presence. But then humanity, dead in our trespasses and sins, we're unholy. We're at enmity with God. We're separated from God the, the wall of hostility stands between us and our creator. And that's partly our hostility, that by nature we are hostile to God, that we want nothing to do with God. We want to do it our own way. It's also hostility in the sense of the Lord, that, that it says in the scripture that the Lord has wrath against sin, that he has indignation against sin, this holy, righteous, good enmity against sin, that we are separated from God. But then think about what happened as Jesus hung on the cross, as he died bearing the sins of his people, that as he breathed his last, it says that the the curtain of the temple was ripped open from top to bottom, that through the death of Jesus, the way into the most holy place 
is open. And it's open through the blood of Christ as we trust in Jesus. That what Jesus did on the cross was take the enmity. He took the hostility upon himself. It says in our text that he might reconcile us both to God in one body through the cross, thereby killing the hostility. That Jesus kills the hostility between us and God as he is killed in our place on the cross, bearing the wrath of God against our sin, the wrath that we deserve. And therefore it says in, in verse 18, verse 17 that Jesus comes to preach peace to those who are far off and to peace to those who are near. For through him we both have access in one spirit to the Father. And so you notice that Trinitarian statement of the gospel that, that we can be brought near to God. That we, we come, it says, we have access through Christ in one spirit to the Father. Father, Son, Holy Spirit. That's the statement of the gospel here in the text. And so we reflect on this reality. We say, yes, there is a dividing wall of hostility if we are outside of Christ. That if you have never repented and trusted in Jesus for salvation, then the, the curtain to the most holy place remains closed the, the dividing wall of hostility is still in place, that you are still an enemy of God by nature. But then when we turn, repent of our sins, trust in Christ for salvation, that we're brought nearer by the blood of Christ. We are reconciled through the cross, that he kills the hostility. We have boldness and access to the Father, that we have entrance into the, the throne room of God, that we're adopted into the family of God, that we receive new hope, new identity through Jesus in the gospel. And that's our first heading today, that, that Paul confronts division in the church by reminding us of the gospel. But then second, he confronts division in the church by reminding us of powerful implications of the gospel. And so in a way, you could say that the gospel deals with the most fundamental division, this vertical dimension between us and God. That in the gospel, that division is broken down. But then the implication of that gospel has to do with horizontal division between people. Look in your, your Bible in verse 14, how Paul uses this language of the dividing wall of hostility. It says that Jesus himself is our peace, who has made us both one and has broken down in his flesh the dividing wall of hostility by abolishing the law of commandments expressed in ordinances that he might create in himself one new man in the place of two, so making peace. 
Because remember, we were talking about the temple as this symbol of division between us and God. That the, the curtain into the most holy place was this wall of hostility. But the temple was also a symbol of division between Jew and Gentile during the Old Testament period. We talked about this last week, that as you approach the temple, there was an outer court called the Court of the Gentiles. And that's where Gentiles could go up to, to worship God, to worship the God of Israel. But there was a wall, a dividing wall, and if a Gentile passed through that wall, through that gate, they could face the death penalty. And Josephus, the early Jewish historian, says that as you approach, that there were two pillars at, at even distance, and that there were words written in Latin and in Greek, and it outlined the laws of purity from the Old Testament, and it warned Gentiles, no Gentile shall pass through this point. And according to Josephus, the Roman officials had empowered the temple leaders to give the death penalty to any Gentile who passed through that dividing wall of hostility. Even a Roman citizen could receive the death penalty if they crossed through that barrier. It was that serious, which was almost unthinkable in Roman law, but they they saw the seriousness of passing through that barrier. And it's interesting that the Apostle Paul, as he's writing this letter to the Ephesians, was in prison. And you say, well, why was he in prison at this point? And so turn in your Bible back to Acts chapter 21 and look at verse 27. The Apostle Paul was in Jerusalem. He was teaching the gospel. And and as he often did, he went up to the temple and entered into that court where only the Jews could go. Listen to what happened said, when the seven days were almost completed, the Jews from Asia, seeing him in the temple, stirred up the whole crowd and laid hands on him. Verse 28, crying out, men of Israel, help. This is the man who is teaching everyone everywhere against the people and the law of this place. Moreover, he even brought Greeks into the temple and had def- has defiled this holy place. For they had previously seen Trophimus, the Ephesian, with him in the city. And they supposed that Paul had brought him into the temple. And so you understand what's happening, that, that Paul is in the city of Jerusalem with an Ephesian Gentile Christian named Trophimus, And he was seen with this Gentile. And so then when the religious authorities saw him in the the court of the women, as it was called, where, where ordinary Jews could worship, they assumed that he had brought this uncircumcised Gentile Christian into that court of the Gentiles. That was a capital offense, that, that he had brought a Gentile into the holy place, that he had defiled this place. And so he was arrested and handed over to the authorities. 
And I would suspect that word could have made it back to the Ephesian church. After all, Paul was accused of being with an Ephesian Gentile. And perhaps word made it back to the Ephesians. Paul has been thrown into prison for supposedly bringing a Gentile through the dividing line of hostility into a holy place. So here Paul is is picking up on that that language, and he's saying, know that that Christ has made us one, that he has broken down in his flesh the dividing wall of hostility. And he did it by abolishing the law of commandments expressed in ordinances that he may create one new man in the place of two. That Jesus comes and on the cross he abolishes not the moral law of God summarized in the Ten Commandments, uh, that reflects the holy nature of God, but he, he tears down the, the ceremonial law of the Old Testament, the laws that separated Jew and Gentile, that those are, are broken down by his death on the cross. And then you see how he draws out the implication of the gospel for unity in the church. Turn back to Ephesians chapter 2. And then look at verse 16, that he reconciled us both to God in one body through the cross, thereby killing the hostility. He's saying that you have not been reconciled to God as merely an individual, as if it's only about you and God, but as you are reconciled to God as the way to the most holy place is open, the other barriers are broken down. If you can go into the most holy place by the blood of Christ, that means you can pass through the court of the Gentiles. That means you can pass through the court of the women. That means you can pass through the court of the priests where only the priests could go. That means you can pass through the holy place that all the other barriers horizontally are broken down. And so Paul is saying this distinction between Jew and Gentile is ridiculous. It's silly. It doesn't make any sense. You have been brought near through one Christ by one spirit to one father, one baptism, one church, one Lord. Of course, this has implications for us as we think about the application of the gospel in our world. You think about racial division. What place does racial division have in the Christian church? That it's broken down if we really understand the gospel. Because it's not this color or that color. It's not this cultural background or that cultural background. It's not I'm from this continent, you're from this other continent. It's one in Christ. One new humanity. One body breaking down the hostility in Christ. Same thing for socioeconomic division. It's not rich and poor. It's not white collar, blue collar, that we are one in Christ. One new humanity. But at this point, I imagine that you might say, all right, I see that the gospel has implications. I I see how the gospel should break down barriers within the church. But what can I actually do? 
what are practical applications from all of this in my life? And so as we wrap up today, I want to propose three applications of what we've been talking about. So here's the, the first application. The first is start with the gospel. That we always start with the gospel. Notice that's what Paul has done for us in the book of Ephesians. He didn't start in verse 1 with the problem of divisions within the church. He didn't start with practical ways to, to get Jews and Gentiles together within the church. That he started with the gospel, with the common problem that we're dead in our trespasses and sins, with a common solution that we've been made alive with Christ, that there's hope to enter in through the blood of Christ in one spirit. And it's important to keep the proper order. That the church in its mission, first and foremost, is called to preach the gospel, to proclaim the gospel to the nations, to deal with that, that vertical dividing wall of hostility, to reconcile us to God, first and foremost. And if we try to make the, the church into a, a merely social institution that's only focused on breaking down horizontal barriers, it may have temporary results, but it's, it's missing the power of the gospel because it's ultimately the gospel that will tear down division and boundaries between people. That it, it's not a social program, it's not a political program, it's not any merely human action that can tear down these dividing walls of hostility, that it takes the gospel first and foremost, and that is where we start. So that's the first application, start with the gospel. But the second is cultivate hospitality. You might say, well, I don't see that in the text. But we know from elsewhere in the New Testament that one of the ways that division between Jew and Gentile expressed itself was in table fellowship, in meals. You could think of Peter, who even though he had been preaching unity of Jew and Gentile together in one body, when he was worshiping in the church and they were enjoying fellowship and then Jewish Christians showed up from Jerusalem, he drew back. He separated himself from the Gentiles. And in Galatians 2, the Apostle Paul has to, to call out Peter again to remind him that, yes, this unity that you have should extend to your meals, the way that you fellowship with others within the church. And so as we think about maintaining unity in the church, seeing those dividing lines of hostility broken down, a way to start is just to, to be in each other's homes, to invite one another over for dinner or a meal, or to meet one another at a coffee shop or at a restaurant. And so you can think about this, that how long does it take you before you invite a new visitor or new attender over to your house? Have you actually sat down for a meal with most of the people within the church? And what would it look like to, to cultivate that, to, to open up your home more often or to, to reach out to others, to meet out somewhere more often, to, to enjoy that table fellowship? And then as you're doing that, examine your heart for partiality. 
The Bible warns us against the sin of partiality so many times where we favor one person over another person. Maybe it's because they look like us. Maybe it's because they dress like us. Uh, maybe it's because uh, they eat similar foods or they are, have a similar socioeconomic standing. Whatever it is, are we more apt to invite people who are like ourselves over or to get together with them more? And then if you see a pattern of partiality where you favor one group or another, where it tends to be a certain type of person that you are always with, then what would it look like to repent of that, to turn to the Lord in the midst of that, and to say, Lord, what would it look like to, to reach out more to people who are different from me, even within a local congregation of believers? But then the, the third application is this. So we said the first was start with the gospel, the second is cultivate hospitality. And the third is to preach peace. To preach peace. Now look at verse 17. It says that Jesus came and preached peace to you who are far off and peace to those who are near. That Jesus comes as our peace. Jesus comes as the Prince of Peace. And that Jesus comes preaching peace to those who are far off, to the, to the Gentile nations. He comes preaching peace to those who are near, to the, to the Jewish nation. And that we are called to follow that example. That we're called to be people who, who preach peace. And it says in verse 14 that Jesus is our peace. That if we are to preach peace, that means that we are to preach Christ, that we're to preach Jesus Christ and him crucified. And that means preaching it to those who are near, preaching the gospel to your friends, to your family, to, to those who look like you who, or eat like you or have a lifestyle like you. But then it also means preaching Christ, preaching the Prince of Peace to those who are far off crossing lines of culture, lines of race, lines of socioeconomic status, bringing the gospel to every tribe, tongue, and nation. What does that look like for the church? What does that look like for us? Remembering first the gospel, God reconciling us to himself in Christ, and then remembering the powerful implication of the gospel that he reconciles us to one another, that he entrusts us with this ministry of reconciliation in Christ in one spirit through the gospel, access to the Father. Let's pray. Father, we thank you for our access to you through Christ in one spirit. And Lord, I, I thank you that, that we have been brought near, that, that we have access and hope and peace. And Lord, I, I pray that today we would see Jesus as our peace, that we wouldn't look for peace through, through politics, that we wouldn't look for peace through some kind of social action alone, uh, but that we would, we would look for peace in Jesus Christ. And that in him, we would see ourselves reconciled to God 
that we, we recognize that the, we as humanity have the same fundamental problem that, that whether we come from different backgrounds or cultures, whether we have a different amount of money in our bank account, that we, we see that our, our problem is that we're dead by nature, we're, we're sinners, we can't save ourselves, and we all have the same solution that's faith in Christ. And so, Lord, we pray that we could be brought together as the church, that we can be a beacon of this unity within the church uh, to those surrounding nations, that as the, as the world looks at the church, that they wouldn't see divisions that only look like the surrounding world, but that we could see the, the breakdown of the dividing wall of hostility, and that we can be with one another, eat with one another, love one another, uh, reflect the unity and diversity that we are called to be, looking forward to being gathered to the throne of grace when every tribe, tongue, and nation will glorify you through Christ in one spirit. And we pray this in Jesus' name. Amen.